Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying episodes of the Mental Models podcast, you'd likely enjoy reading Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making. George and I co-authored this book, Merging Our Knowledge, to provide you with an authoritative guide where our money-related biases come from and also what we can do about them. Material from Understanding Behavioral Bias is now included within the legendary Harvard Case Studies content library. Harvard Case Studies is widely used across the worlds of finance and business, and it's recognized as being one of the top repositories of leading-edge financial content. The book is available in both print and Kindle versions on Amazon. So buy it, read it, and improve your process. In a recent episode, we covered uh, something known as the hot hand effect, which is the streaky talent uh, that seems to be with someone for a, for a time. And we think that uh, that's going to maybe continue into the future. But uh, as George and I talked about, you have to always think about the long-term set of outcomes, and it's just a very deep topic and quite fascinating. We thought we'd continue on and revisit that and talk about some more effects related to this. I personally think that Dan wants to talk about this topic because he has been playing darts quite well recently, and he wants to kind of soft brag about his success as a dart-throwing uh, maven. I, I have uh, been hitting the dartboard quite a lot in these times. I, I even have uh, particular outfits I'll wear, and uh, I like to have you know my family watch and prefer preferably applaud when I when I walk out to the dart line. <laughs> and uh, I've cast myself as the, as the hero of the story. Jo- all joking aside, I, I throw darts in my garage. There's nothing glamorous about it whatsoever <laughs> with uh, you know those English plastic darts. But uh, it's related to today's topic known as the streaking star effect, which is a, a clever sort of name for a bias that was uh, reported on just this year by Jesse Walker and Tom Gilovich. Tom Gilovich is the lead author of of the famous 1985 Hot Hand article that he did with his colleagues, Valone and Tversky. Jesse Walker is at Ohio State University. He was the lead author on the Streaking Star Effect uh, paper. And this was a really interesting concept that they had investigated in nine experiments, this notion that uh, we tend to enjoy the successes of an individual more than we enjoy the successes of a team. And you can think about this in modern sports. Uh, who doesn't want to see Michael Phelps come back and win his bazillionth gold medal, right? No matter how many he wins, it just adds to the lore of this guy or Usain Bolt in sprinting you know it it just uh you think of Carl Lewis in sprinting you know there's all these individuals that we want to celebrate and we want to continue to see them become the goat the greatest of all time even in team sports this is true you think of Michael Jordan Kobe Bryant LeBron James you never exactly you never think about the Lakers of particular years or, you know, the Celtics and Lakers of the 80s boil down to Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. So we tend to have this uh, overfixation on the individual, and it feeds into a bias that we've we've observed in a number of contexts that, that we like narratives. We like, if you think about us as uh, having brains that are geared toward a tribal, you know, life in the savannah mindset, you would want to have a leader. You'd want to have confidence and in, in the skills 
struggles of an individual, coupled with the uh, cynicism that comes with um, when it's a team, you know, it's a, it's a decision by committee, or, you know, it's paralysis by analysis, all these kind of catchphrases that get at, you know, watering down the idea by having to negotiate it through a a team or collective seems problematic. If you think about a group, it's harder to have sympathy or identify with the group. I think every individual is the hero of their own story. So if they can think of an individual and put a narrative to that individual's success uh, as them having some, some something special, it's a lot easier to conceptualize than oh, there's an organizational structure here that happens to be very conducive to free flows of ideas and exploiting the talents of each individual that works like within a cog in a machine. Like that's a very elaborate and uh, more difficult concept to grasp as opposed to, you know, Steve Jobs is just a magic man right, who manages to come and come up with amazing technology that he dreams up and uh, really creates uh, all of the the greatness that came out of Apple. Yeah, no one ever had a song about, I want to be like the Bulls, right? It was, I want to be like Mike, was one of the, you know, innumerable ad campaigns that was associated with Michael Jordan alone. I think that's a really good point. We, we, we want to be the hero and we can't think like a team. We don't want to be like the executive board at Apple. No one ever says that. It doesn't even make sense. No, no. And it, the reality is uh, there is often an iconic figure that becomes the face or the ambassador for a company. You can think of Jack Welch and GE, uh, where for several years, Jack Welch was recognized as the greatest CEO of all time. And you know, kind of turns out that over time there were some, you know, I don't want to be too uh, incriminating, but, you know, there were some liberties that were perhaps taken uh, with some of the accounting. And there was pushback against Jack Welch also. I remember when he had his uh, bestseller come out, I, I remember reading editorials of kind of like, Maybe not everyone liked going in every Sunday to do nothing but work. Right. You know? <laughs> and so, and so there was like a, there was definitely a pushback against it, but there was this heroism, and I think you're correct, especially in that executive culture. There is really hero worship and trying to be like these uh, superstar figures. Um, it's very obvious in tech companies as well. I mean, you, no one thinks of Amazon without thinking of Jeff Bezos. And it, it's just the same with Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg, as if he's still doing it out of his dorm room by himself. It's just far from reality. It's just hard to not see the whole giant company as one huge extension of Mark Zuckerberg at this point. But, you know, it's kind of a counterpoint to the other view here is management can often make a very big difference. Uh, if you think about Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs was not a great engineer. Uh, he had two different really powerful talents that allowed him to uh, make Pixar and uh, really Apple the successes that they were. Uh, one was that he could attract people and draw out of those people the talents beyond what their natural limits were. He, they, you know, the, I believe in the bi biography uh, about Steve Jobs, I forget who wrote it. Oh, Walter Isaacson. Walter I right. Isaacson. 
Uh, he talked about the reality distortion field that Steve Jobs would create, where he would imbue somebody with talents well beyond their scope, and they would end up producing more than they probably could have otherwise. Oh, no question. Heroes inspire us. Yeah, I mean, we, we've taken a tone as if this is irrational thus far. Um, if you took it a completely unemotional unmotivated viewpoint and look at this, you you probably would always want a a rational committee of diverse voices behind you, you know, if you're running your organization, whatever that might be, because we're going to have blind spots. But there's no question for um, driving forward motivation, a, a strong, heroic face of an organization makes an enormous difference. And um, just to bring it back to sports, which is a bit of a microcosm for human life, you know, merchandise can be sold to such a great extent driven by a superstar. So Michael Jordan um, probably had a far bigger influence off the court than he ever did on the court, just through think of all the sales of Bulls jackets and hats and everyone would identify with him. And um, all of the corporate money that gets sort of lumped in there that everyone wants to identify with the hero when tiger woods was in his prime before the uh incidents of uh infidelity came up you know he was accenture's you know he was the face of accenture and you couldn't walk through an airport without seeing uh that that sort of individual hero effort associated with this company so it's it's a very potent driver of motivation of capital of talent and and if you think about it within the organization itself, if there is a if there is a hero or a icon that's representative of the company that's perceived as being great, it's a very motivating factor for the rank and file and for the other executives associated with that business. Because if it's the opposite, if the perception is the person is a loser or they're not very good at allocating capital. They don't have a lot of talent. You know, if they're if there's not success associated with that person, then it can undermine the psychology of people within the organization about the direction that's being made, whatever management uh, decisions that could result in changes within the organization, which nor you know. Every change that's going to happen within an organization is going to have some constituents that suffer as a result. Right. And particularly in the tech industry, you think of like the term disrupt. You have to be disruptive, right? The status quo is seen as a negative. So um, there's this real desire to have a public face of the organization who is on the cutting edge, changing things, you know, driving new directions, exploring in new, in new ways. Um, otherwise, it seems stale. So maybe more than ever, uh, we 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 need to have a a face of new change and new directions and being on the cutting edge. And I think that's spilling over into broader corporate culture. You know, the tech industry moves at such a rapid pace with such breathtaking valuations and rises and falls. And it does feel like even more mundane industries are now needing to play that same sort of story to the to the degree they can dis, disrupt the status quo change with the times you know present a narrative right and anytime you have something that's going down that route where there is change there has to be a lot of faith 
and the people that are implementing those decisions. Otherwise, you know, they will be undermined and questioned. Uh, so to some degree, you really to have a successful organization, you need to have a leader that people believe in. They subscribe to this, this kind of hero narrative. Then there's the flip side to all of that, where a leader believes themselves to be uh, the architect and the uh, driving force behind the, com- the, the success of a company. And they end up surrounding themselves with people that are essentially sycophants that they, you know, they, they end up weeding out those people that show dissent to whatever uh, input or whatever uh, decisions that the leader is kind of coming to. Uh, they tend to support whatever ideas the leader comes up with uh, and any sort of questioning or quality control associated with those ideas can be suppressed if the leader adopts this notion that they are uh, essentially the root of all success within the organization. Oh, it's really dangerous. Yeah. It's sort of success going to one's head. You start to um, worryingly not seek dissent where it would be helpful because the world is complex and industries change all the time. So uh, that, I think, is one of the constant struggles that um, executives face is how to get the correct balance of dissent and unity. And it is a balancing act because you you definitely don't want to become unanimous. Uh, You do not want to have people that simply agree with you because um, you're the great so-and-so, right? And and that gets really dangerous. So um, I think you're correct. We we actually do really need group input. The best decisions have... um, input from diverse angles with a focus on numbers, with a focus on public perception. You need all those components. And um, what's fascinating, though, I I think one of the most uh, impactful experiments from Walker and Gilovich in their recent paper was uh, the perception of market share that a company should have based on uh, who had made the decisions. And in good social experiments, you want to have exactly the same conditions, just varying one thing. And so they asked people, you know, what's the appropriate market share for um, a company that's that's succeeding in the following ways? And they've just varied whether a charismatic CEO had made the decisions or whether a group of executives had made the decisions. And people generally felt the one with the CEO making the decision should be more successful. So there is this general public perception of uh, we want to sort of see the, the hero succeed. And I think within the brain, just thinking of this again from a, a brain-based viewpoint, um, I often think of us living in kind of tribes, you know, and, and we, we just live in <laughs> just giant, giant tribes now, but there's still these very tribal instincts of following, you know, one tribe member who seems to have a strong idea and seems to have been successful. That's probably adaptive, right? Where our brains are going to live to fight another day if we find such a person and, and sort of hitch ourselves to that wagon, so to speak. Um, if, if it's too, if it's a, a large number of of people, we can't find the thread of the narrative, right? It, it just feels like I, I can see things are working. I kind of want to be around that success, but it's just too big. I don't know how I play a part. I can't quite trace the complexities and I, I'm not seeing the cause effect chain of things. So when one person seems to be driving the success, we 
we feel clarity because we can attribute that success to that that one individual and their talents. And so that may be the underlying basis for why we have this bias toward um, streaking stars, as uh, as Walker and Gilovich say. Um, I I feel like that's that's just borne out in so many areas of life. Um, what advice could we give based on that? Well, it's, I think, going to be different in different circumstances. So if you think about decision making in the context of investing, usually investment by committee tends to be a very dangerous way to come up with uh, really practical investment ideas because of all the dynamics associated with the group. Now, if you have, and we talk about this in our book, uh, there are certain ways you can overcome individual bias, but then also uh, try to overcome the difficulties associated with group decision-making. Things like uh, giving deference to leaders within a group uh, or uh, issues associated with people not wanting to show uh, disagreement with one another. Uh, you know, you can go and, and make decision making in more of an anonymous uh, fashion, uh, which can overcome some of those dynamics from, from an investment perspective uh, where you would like to have uh, perhaps the insight of different individuals, but an ultimate decision maker that is going to be the person that actually makes makes the decision. Uh, so, but that, then in another context, in an operational context, uh, you know, where you really do need to have somebody uh, who is not blind to the difficulties that are occurring with an organization, but they tend to be run in more autocratic fashion. You know, that's also a dynamic where uh, you do probably need to have uh, more input from other individuals within the organization for decision making to avoid uh, basically falling with falling to uh, the blind spots that are inherent within an individual decision maker. Yeah, well put. The context really matters. Um, I'm reminded of something I'm sure we've said a number of times uh, in this podcast and in in other places that uh, a a bad investing strategy is to follow the crowd because the more more people you're listening to, eventually you just become uh, late to the game and just following the market and behind the trend. Um, Being a contrarian is sometimes a a good investing strategy. Um, Sometimes the individual voice is actually uh, the way to find great opportunity. Um, if you want to read about uh, some of these uh, and our thoughts on these biases in greater depth, uh, we encourage you to uh, acquire our recent book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, uh, which is available um, on Amazon. And uh, we considered the hot hand effect uh, from Tom Gelovich and Amos Tversky to be one of the uh, attention biases where you're over-attending to a particular individual kind of feeds into this streaking star idea that if somebody is uh, sort of on a, a narrative track to be the hero, we, we tend to be biased toward over uh, confidence in following that person. And uh, of course, you know, we're all human and we all have our blind spots and biases and fallibilities. So even heroes uh, like Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan have those. And we've, we've seen that play out in the media repeatedly. 
with all these different narratives. Another uh, really important area to look at in uh, in regard to this is groupthink biases, which uh, George and I consider to be a knowledge-based bias, uh, has to do with properly calibrating and balancing opinion from others with um, individual ideas, and in that you really run a set of risks if you're too in-groupish and uh, too unanimous, but you also clearly run risks if you're listening to a voice in the wind. So like many things in life, it's a balancing act and it takes work. Well, and there's always nuance. And I I wouldn't go so far to say that it's always bad to run with the crowd. Uh, It just depends on the circumstance. Uh, For instance, uh, George Soros once said that he doesn't mind investing in a fraud as long as he knows that it's a fraud, right? <laughs> so you just yeah. have to know what game you're playing. And if you're if you're chasing momentum, if you're playing the momentum game, uh, you just have to know that one day that comes to an end and it could be quite abrupt and painful. You can't hold on indefinitely. You have to know what you're, if you're engaging in a short-term strategy or a long-term strategy. And there's always the risk of loss. Like there's always the having a long term momentum strategy that I think I totally agree with Dan that that is probably quite questionable. But if you're if you're very short term focused, having a long term framework that you're applying for a short term outcome, also a bad idea. Right. Because you won't be able to deal with the fact that the long term perspective may not be adopted for some time by the market, and you'll lose money in the short term. Yeah, I'm reminded of a quote I heard years ago. It's okay to be antisocial as long as you're doing it with the right people. (laughs) 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 All right, so constant vigilance. Uh, We can celebrate heroes, but let's remember it's a team effort sometimes as well. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.